Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Greetings and salutations, listeners. You have returned for another episode of Cycling in Alignment with Colby Pierce, and for that, I am grateful. Today's conversation is with none other than the amazing world tour rider, Nathan Haas. Nathan rides for the French team, Kofi D. And what we've done today is a cross pod. I don't know if that's really a word. Maybe I just made it up in my head, but we recorded an episode for Nathan's new gravel podcast, Gravelog, and we decided to drop it on my channel as well. It's kind of like cheating, but in a good way. Really, it's just extra benefit for all of our listeners so that they can get the value of the words that Nathan is speaking, and maybe you get something out of what I say too. We have a great conversation about all things gravel, including the differences between training for a gravel event relative to the context of a road training, and also we get into a bit of a wormhole on bike fit. You know me by now, I'm really not great at short format stuff. I prefer to expand the dialogue and prognosticate about a great many things. So when this happens, I tend to go wormholing and off in the weeds. That said, hopefully our conversation will be of value to you and you'll get some nuggets in there. Nathan and I have been working together as coach and athlete for many seasons now, and I have to say that it is one of the relationships in cycling that I really enjoy the most. Nathan is a very introspective and intelligent rider. He thinks critically about his sport and we always have good conversations. It's also been a great honor to work with him. Nathan is one of the best athletes in the world and I have the utmost respect for his ability to pedal a bike. He's also an exceptional human being, but man, that guy can light it up on a climb. You can't believe how fast this dude is. You ever get the chance to go riding with him? You'll see what I mean. So with great respect and gratitude, I now present to you our conversation with Nathan Haas. So Colby, I've just given you one of the greatest introductions to the podcast ever. And uh, I'm not going to let you listen to that before, uh, <laughs> before this episode goes online, because I know you're a very modest man. You're not a man that needs celebrity and fame, but um, there you have it. I've just given you the best introduction ever. But anyway, I'd just like to formally welcome Colby Pierce to the Gravel Log. Thank you so much for having me, Nathan. It's a real honor to be a guest on your show, and I'm super excited that you are doing this project and uh, enjoyed your episode with Pete Stetner the other day. I listened to that, and that was great. I love your intro music, and uh, you guys had a lot of good topics, so looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, I think it's a conversation area that has so many places to go. And uh, I was going to send you an email with conversation points uh, just to kind of give this conversation a little bit of a skeleton. And then I had one of those moments where I sat there and I said, actually, I think one of the most incredible thing about our conversations is that they are often quite unbound and we start to get into the weeds into places that we didn't expect. And I think that's actually where the real gold is. So um, I will start the podcast off by simply saying, I love gravel riding, and this has become something of a new love for me, but it brings me back a step to 
a feeling that I had when I was in my teens in the early 2000s where I first hopped onto mountain bikes. And in the early 2000s, mountain bikes were, I mean, at, at the time they seemed very high tech and I looked at them and I thought, God, there's no way that these can ever get better. You know, maybe they're going to get shinier or a little bit prettier. Uh-huh. Yeah. But mountain bike technology now is essentially we're riding on motocross bikes that are super light with no engines and you can take them off anything. But in the early 2000s, mountain bikes were quite cumbersome. They were quite heavy. They had skinny tires. They had skinny handlebars. And they had about 80 to 100 millimeters of suspension in the front, which now feels a lot like my suspension does on a mountain bike when it's locked out. So gravel riding to me almost feels like a return to my teenage years. And I would love to get your thoughts on what you see gravel riding is. That's a great perspective. Yeah. I mean, I would agree. I've, I've done, I've been racing since 1988 and my first few cross country mountain bike races were on a mountain bike that was not only a hard tail, but it was a hard, hard nose, I guess, um, no suspension whatsoever. So I was that knuckleheaded guy who thought that I was going to drop everybody on the climbs and then I wouldn't need a fork on the descents until I flathead crashed and got passed multiple times. And then I had to learn that lesson. But I would say for me, for me, gravel riding is it's a, it's a vehicle for me to continue to express my love for this sport. You know, just the other day, a client asked me, we kind of had a conversation. I was doing a bike fit and we had a conversation where he asked me about, you know, my history in the sport a little bit and kind of what types of races I was doing currently and, and what races I'd done. And I kind of went through the list. I was like, well, I've been a, a pro roadie for a while. And then I raced on the track. And then I went through a cyclocross phase for several years and also raced a bunch of cross country mountain bike races and stage races and hundred mile mountain bike races. So I kind of done a lot of different flavors of cycling. And, and then he asked me, well, what's your favorite? And man, I, I still can't really answer that question to be honest, because I just love cycling. Like I've got so many local mountain bike rides that I have loved and enjoyed. There's so many other places in the world. I want to go mountain biking. The same can be said for gravel. The same can be said for road and track. When we have a velodrome open near me right now, currently we have two velodromes in the state of Colorado, but both of them are closed to riding, unfortunately. But you know, I still love riding the track and, and teaching on the track and, and feeling the sense of speed there. So for me to, to kind of answer that question, gravel is a tool that has come alive for me in the last few years, because I live on the front range of Colorado, which has the population here has really exploded. It's become a lot busier in particular in the last five years. And this is a common thread for a lot of road riders the roads are just so much busier. And when I ride my bike, I want, for me, cycling is about two things fundamentally. It's about connection with nature externally and internally. It's about connection with self. And, you know, I've, I've been racing my bike for 35 years. So for me, connection with self doesn't necessarily have to be some adventure in finding my limits. I like to go hard at times. I like to go fast. I like to see how fast I can go up a hill, but some days often I just like to go out and just ride my bike and ride by feel. And then I'd like to go get in the mountains and get away from cars and traffics and uh, traffic and, and gas stations and, you know, potholes and, and noise. I like to see trees and birds and lakes and mountains. And we have a lot of those things in Colorado. So gravel is a way for it to make that more accessible. In some instances, I can get more quickly from my home. I've got a limited amount of time. Maybe I've got 75 minutes or 90 minutes on a weekday. If I'm lucky right now, I'm not don't have a lot of time to ride at the moment. And I I don't want to spend, you know, 90% of that time 
riding in traffic and being constantly passed by cars. I mean, there's a safety risk factor, but there's also just a, 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 a sensation that I want to be on my bike and connect internally and feel some external connection with nature without the car. The cars are disruptive to that. Automobile, tra automobile traffic for me is a constant distraction. There's a lot of noise. There's a little bit of fear. There's this concern about your line and your relationship on the road. So all those things go away when you get on a gravel bike. If you're on single track, you've obviously got no cars passing you, or, or if you do, something went really wrong. Uh, or we're on a Jeep road or a dirt road, and here we have a pretty good network of dirt, of dirt roads that are accessible from my home in short, uh, in a pretty short duration, and the traffic is 1 20th of what it is on the paved roads. So then I can, I can ride the dirt roads and just enjoy no car. So for me, that's the biggest thing about gravel is that it allows me to better access to quieter riding in short duration rides. The other thing I'll say is that it just changes things. Uh, I've been, I've lived in Boulder my whole life. I've traveled the world as a bike racer, obviously, but I've done all these road rides a million times and gravel opens up. It, it doubles or triples the number of routes that I have from my home. So that gives me more variety. And like the saying goes, variety is the spice of life. So when you're riding your bike a lot, change things up, do a few little challenging things, you know, get a little sideways on a corner that adds another dimension to my riding. Yeah, I think that's a, a beautiful answer. And I really resonate with that. And, you know, I, I, I'd take what you said to um, even another step here in saying that we have a limited cognitive capacity. And when we're on the road, I think so much of that capacity is distracted by the constant fear of cars, which is a survival mechanism. You know, your, your hearing is trying to hear behind you because, you know, we don't have eyes in the back of our head. And we're so aware of the constant danger, even when we're doing an easy ride or a fast ride, so much of our capacity is taken up. And I realized something actually on a gravel ride recently where I just went for an easy ride. I realized, wow, I'm actually smelling on this ride. Mm. <laughs> like I'm actually using one of the sensory devices of our body that I don't think I've ever, unless, unless I'm riding past roadkill or something where it's, you know, it's all you can think about. <laughs> but, but yeah, for me, gravel is, it's actually not purely just being out in nature, but I'm actually ex experiencing different sensory inputs when I'm out on the gravel bike, which I actually feel are so grounding. You know, when you smell that pine tree sap that's sweating out of the hot trees in summer yeah. or in winter, when you're starting to smell the mildew and the fog coming in. And mm. I find also just that slower pace as well. You start to really internalize a lot of your sensations more. You can feel the sweat beating down your face. You can hear yourself breathing, mm. which again is another thing, um, which is, you know, a huge training tool if we do it properly is actually becoming aware of our breathing which is, you know, something that we don't have a monitor on our, on our Wahoo or Garmin telling us, you know, you're breathing too fast for this effort, you know, you're shallow breathing. And I think so much of my experience when I'm actually outdoors on a bike, not just outdoors in general, but outdoors on a bike is that I'm experiencing so much, so much more than I would if I was going for a hike, mm. but on a much deeper level than if I'm on the road because I just don't have these distractions. And I think that there is something so deep and quite beautiful about that. That's a great point. Um, you know, to expand on that concept, even a touch farther, further, farther, uh, thinking about, 
you know, so many aspects of modern life for people who live in a city or an urban environment are about uh, separation from nature. And when you start to dig into this, it, it's a it's a theme that goes so deep in our society. I mean, we have pain in our knee. What do we do? We go to a doctor and they give us a drug that camouflages that pain. We have allergies and those are inconvenient. And so what do we do? Instead of digging into why our body has an inflammatory response to breathing the air around us, why is our body chronically inflamed? We take medications that, you know, cover up these symptoms or shut the body's allergic response down. And don't worry about the downstream impacts of that. Let's just deal with the symptoms because symptoms are yucky. So how do we get around town? We drive in air conditioned boxes because we don't want to feel the heat. We don't want to feel ourselves be sweaty or smell each other's body odor. Because when you eat toxic food, I'm getting on a soapbox now, your body odor smells really bad. But if you've got a clean body and you're eating well, it's not such a problem. We so same thing, you know, you could argue that road riding is a form of cycling that's a little more insulated from nature. We've got, yeah, we've got hard tires, but we've also got gloves and we're riding on road and pavement and asphalt is, of course, we get proprioceptive feedback from riding on asphalt, but you feel so much more of the terrain when you're riding on a gravel bike. And again, you could almost make the argument that mountain bikes go farther away from that as well, because suspension is, sus suspension is fundamentally designed to give you more speed on a trail. But it also, it dulls all the, the yucky parts, all the bumps, all the drops, all the rocks, the roots, so that you can conserve momentum and rock it down a hill. And that's a, that's a great thing in and of itself. But gravel's this kind of happy midpoint of those two disciplines in the sense that we're still on the roots and rocks, but we're not dulling so much of that input. You're feeling the bike as it drives through the corner. I mean, modern mountain bikes are amazing technological devices, as you were saying. So you can go flying down a hill. You can almost point a modern mountain bike down a pretty technical trail, pretty much just point it straight and go over almost everything because suspension technology is so advanced. But in a gravel bike, you've got to be much more delicate and deliberate about your line and your weight distribution and your contact patch, right? And tire pressure. I mean, tire pressure is critical in all off-road disciplines. Well, actually all cycling disciplines, really. But in gravel, so much so, I mean, the difference between three PSI overinflated in a gravel ride can definitely be the difference between a flowy descent and feeling the terrain, really working with the contours of the trail. And that's that feeling, right? That's that engagement with your environment. That's the return to nature in a, granted, a very unique and we might say artificial way because bikes are these obtuse creations of man. They're these, they're, we've taken rocks and molded them and melted them down and made them into these marvelous machines that convert our metabolic energy into mechanical energy. Uh, and, and that's a great thing, but it still allows us to connect with nature. And as you said, you know, you can go for a hike and connect with nature in many ways. You can have lots of smells and get stung by bees and feel the contour of the trail and see amazing things. But what I love about a bike is that we can, you can go so far on a five hour bike ride from your home and see some of the most amazing stuff and to do that hiking takes you three days. To do that in a car takes you 90 minutes, but it's an air-conditioned box. And when you're going, you know, 80K an hour or 200K an hour in a car, whatever, man, you don't, you don't see very much. You can see things, but you go by so fast. So it's the perfect way to explore the environment, I guess is what I'm getting at. And that goes back to that engagement with, with the environment, engagement, you know, the smells and the contour of the terrain and the dirt, and you bring the dirt home sometimes. 
then you got to wash your bike. I love that. And that, that sort of uh, brings, brings to mind another point that I've shared with many people about um, my new kind of love and obsession with gravel riding is they say, yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, why don't we go out on the mountain bike? And I say, look, I do a lot of danger in my job. Um, and it's not that I'm risk averse. It's, it's potentially that my risk capacity has sort of been reached at a, at a pretty profound level every time I go racing or riding on the road. And where I see mountain bikes now is, like you said, their capacity to go over terrain and to smooth it out has become so unbelievable that for me to actually get an adrenaline kick or to feel that I'm actually riding a trail properly, I need to be going really fast, mm-hmm. which for me throws in the, the kind of newer risk with mountain biking is that crashes can now be really bad on a mountain bike because of the speed that you're going through potentially a huge rock or root garden. If something goes wrong, the new speed that you're going at is so much worse. Whereas mm-hmm. I actually find that with the gravel bike, because I have to be so in tune with the feeling of the bike, the contours of the road, the gradients, the bumps, the compression points, my braking ability, my position, my posture. I'm finding that even though I'm going quite fast on a section, I still feel that because you're so in control of your innermost ability, that one, I think we actually don't crash very much, even though people say, oh, you know, that, that's a little bit counterintuitive. You're on a bike that doesn't give you as much freedom if something goes wrong. Mm. The only difference is we're not putting ourselves into a situation very often where something actually can go wrong. And this has been one of the things that I've loved so much about kind of going back a few steps in technology almost, even though gravel bikes are a, a beautiful piece of engineering in themselves and they're only getting better. But I really, I just really love the feeling that I can go outdoors and ride trails, but feel at the same time that I'm in total control of the situation within, you know, <laughs> there's a certain percentage of deviation point there, but yeah. I think you understand what I'm saying. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, you know, as a professional athlete, someone who's racing the world tour, obviously you have to make intelligent choices about what type of training you're going to do. And if you're going to do off-road training, you've got to, there's risk management in all of these things, uh, just as there's risk management in you choosing to do motor pacing, right? Everything is, has an element of risk in it. And motor pacing, obviously at the right time in your program can be something that draws your your form uh, right into focus, we'll say, or sharpens the blade a bit, and that's a powerful tool. But of course, you know, plowing along behind a scooter at 65k an hour on little Spanish roads can that comes with some risk. So, same point of conversation there. It's like everything we do has to be risk reward, and and riding gravel versus mountain. I think that's a good point. It's in the same, virtually the same position as my road bike, and. There's something that I've become so kind of in tune with is using drop handlebars, you know, on the road. And then my, my setback and seat height and reach and everything is so close to my road position that I find it's such a natural slide across for me. And, and, and obviously a lot of the people listening here are not, are not going to share the same kind of, um, uh, I guess you could call it a situation where I'm on my road bike so much. Um, so, you know, when I step across to a mountain bike, it's obviously going to feel quite alien. And there might be a few listeners here that do mountain biking that are crossing over to gravel or have done cyclocross. And, um, you know, the bikes are fairly similar on cyclocross. Yep. But um, 
I guess what I would kind of like to ask you, because, um, you know, you have a huge background in bike fitting. Um, you're a Steve Hogg authorized bike fitter, which is um, quite an achievement in its own right. Um, and you're as rare as hands teeth around the world. Mm. I'd love to kind of get what your input is on what you think are the different demands of road riding to cyclocross, oh, sorry, gravel riding to cyclocross, road riding and mountain bike, mm -hmm. and how we actually have to approach bike position. Yeah. Yeah. Good question. I wrote an article, uh, that may be floating around on my website a while ago about setting up a gravel. I think I originally wrote, you know, setting up a cross bike and the concepts I talked about there are, you know, fundamentally we have to look from a very big picture lens at what the methodology of bike fitting is. And for me, bike fitting is balancing the physiology of the rider with the demands of their event. So on the one hand, we have a rider that presents with a certain level of fitness, a certain phenotype of fitness, we'll say, and also certain biomechanical capacities or limits, limits in mobility, limits in flexibility, uh, limits, or, or not necessarily limits, but we'll say presents with certain levels in mobility, flexibility, strength, range of motion, um, symmetry or, or asymmetries. And, and that once we understand, have a depth of understanding about how the athlete presents as they walk through the door during a fit session or currently on the bike, then you can evaluate that against what their goals are. And to put it pretty simply, the goals can be put on a spectrum and those spectrums deviate a bit. There's a few pathways that where they go, but fundamentally we can look at it as if someone's goal is to race a time trial, whether that's their local time trial or state championship or national championship or world championship, aerodynamics play a massive role in the outcome of that race. And so the rider is going to have to mold themselves into an aero position. And to be clear, you know, being aerodynamic on a bike is nothing short of an act of contortionism. It really is. And to be really aero, you really have to be plastic in that sense and be able to mold your body to make power, high level power while holding a very specific position. And that's at one extreme end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum you might argue is endurance or ultra endurance mountain bike racing. And the reason that's at the other end of the spectrum is because that's probably the discipline of the sport where aerodynamics play the lowest uh, factor in the overall outcome. And that's because the average speed in most of those races is very, very low. It's, you know, something like 18 K an hour or lower, um, depending on the course and how fast you are as a rider and the weather conditions, you know, when you have a really muddy hundred mile mountain bike race, the times can be obnoxiously long, uh, because everybody's carrying their bike for half the race or, or barely pedaling. So, and in the middle, we have all these other disciplines. And so when we look, most people will come at fitting from a perspective of road riding as their kind of baseline. And when we compare road to gravel or road to cyclocross, we're, we're looking at the demands of those two events. So what do we have? We have for road, we have low, medium, and high speed riding over primarily asphalt terrain. And so the bike has to be able to handle the corners in those different low, medium, and high speeds. And most of the time we're going to have pretty good grip situation, you know, bad weather aside, rain and occasional snow or whatever. And aerodynamics definitely play a role in the outcome of, ro of competitive road cycling. No question, you know, criteriums, road races, you've got to be aero at times, but that's balanced with the ability to 
be able to sit up a little bit and make more power on steep climbs, for example. And then we have to have the bars low enough and long enough to handle the high speed corners uh, that you encounter during a long paved descent. So imagine, you know, a 20 minute descent down uh, a mountain in the Pyrenees or, you know, a mountain on the front range of Colorado. We've got some descents that are easily 20 minutes long and can your speed can exceed 100K an hour at times. So when you're riding at 80 or 100K an hour on a paved descent on a road bike, the critical point to understand here is that weight distribution needs to be very long and low like a Formula One car. And also the other critical point is that weight distribution over the front and rear wheel or over the front wheel tire contact patch, or the way I think about it is the front and rear axle, because that's kind of our leverage point, needs to be pretty close to even because if your front wheel washes out on a road bike at that speed or your rear wheel washes out and loses contact, it doesn't really matter. Either way, you're in big trouble usually, right? Now, right. Now, if we contrast that with a gravel, uh, what do we have in gravel? Well, arguably we have steeper climbs, most, not always, but it's probably easier to find a gravel ride with steeper grades on it, at least for short periods of time. Of course, that's depending on your local terrain. And we have more low and medium speed cornering is more likely uh, or, or more commonly found in ride profiles of either gravel races or gravel riding, which is not to say we never have high speed corners. Of course we do. And that happens, but I would say it's more common that we're riding at a lower average speed. So that means that we have to account for those lower and medium speed corners. And also the terrain is of course loose. You've got, uh, what you might describe as kitty litter style gravel. You've got rocks and roots, depending on how aggressive your course is or your, or your training ride is you've got, um, high speed, smooth fire roads, you know, really well polished dirt roads where you're dealing with more of like a dust situation. But the, the bottom line is we've got more variance in terrain, both in terms of the, the contact surface and the gradient. And um, not just what the surface is comprised of, but also the texture of that surface. We've got washboard and roots and, and random lumps and holes are more common. So whenever the terrain in cornering gets more varied, steeper and uh, looser, my philosophy is that we have to compress the cockpit a little bit because what's necessary is a little more, we'll say body English, which is maneuvering of the center of mass of the rider over the bottom bracket and the wheel axles. And when you're in a really long, low road position, meaning you've got a long cockpit distance from the tip of the saddle to the center of the bars as a conceptual example, and also from the height of the saddle down how far the bars are dropped below the saddle. When you've got that long, low position on a road bike, which is geared towards aerodynamics and also towards that high speed formula one style descending that we've got on our high speed, uh, asphalt corners. Then if we translate that directly to gravel, a lot of times that won't quite work for riders because they'll just be a little too stretched out to, for example, come forward on the saddle and bring their weight forward on a very steep climb to keep the front wheel down and still engage, keep their butt over the bottom bracket enough to engage traction on the rear wheel. Or during a descent, a steep descent, we need them to drop their butt off the back of the saddle or drive the bike either to the inside or outside of their body accordingly to work with the contour of the terrain. Think about like how a mountain biker uses a pump track and they're leaning the bike and driving the bars so that when your bike and body lean into a corner, the bike is actually leaning with a greater degree or a more acute angle 
than the body is. And this is what drives the tread into the asphalt, sorry, into the gravel, into the dirt when the, the contour is correct for this type of cornering. And you can really corner quite fast during that moment, but you have to have the ability to flick the bike down and drive it away from you. And if the handlebars are too far away, you just can't do that effectively. So basically the cliff notes are for most people who have a really long, low, aggressive aero road bike position, we're going to compress their cockpit slightly. First, that means bringing the bars back a little bit. Then it means bringing the bars up a tiny bit. And then in some cases, depending on the rider, it might mean bringing the saddle slightly forward over the bottom bracket. It depends a lot on the rider. And, and for context, it also depends on how back to the physiology of the rider. If the riders really got pretty poor mobility and their road position just isn't that aggressive because they can't sit in that aggressive of a road position, meaning they can't really be that arrow while they're making power. Uh, then the difference between their road position and their gravel position might be almost nothing, right? Because their road position is by definition a bit conservative because their function isn't quite where we would say it ought to be in order to fully meet the demands of their sport. On the other hand, if you've got someone who's super flexible and they're capable of riding in a really extreme low riding position in the road and it's very aero, then we might need to relax things slightly to get them to get the best performance out of their gravel bike, in particular on descents and technical terrain. I also find that on thinking about something like Unbound, which I've never raced, but I've seen you know some videos and photos and whatnot, We've got that endless series of rollers that are really rocky and bumpy. When the bars are too far away from you there, kind of road style, it can really put more pressure on the lower back. You've got, you're kind of extended out in that position. When we kind of compress the cockpit, we just give the capacity for the body to stabilize a little bit. So thinking about, you know, thinking about strength in the gym as a parallel example, if we take a basic example of an exercise, like a back squat, for example, so you've got back, you've got your bar on your back and you're doing your, your squats. How do we progress that exercise? We progress it by, for example, making the base uh, of support less wide. So wider feet is a more stable base. Narrower feet together is gonna challenge the balance of the athlete a little bit. We can also challenge the athlete by putting them on an unstable surface. So if you do the same amount of weight standing on top of a BOSU ball or a stability ball, then you've, you've challenged that, that exercise. You've progressed it. You've made it harder. Well, this is what we're doing when we go from road to gravel, because we're putting you, we're asking you to do the same intensity over an unstable surface. So this is why handlebars also get slightly wider typically on gravel bikes than they are in road. My standard recommendation is that riders go one size wider on their gravel bike than they do on their road bike. And that may also be a uh, accompanied by a one 10 mil shorter stem. Um, all other things being equal just to account for that wider bar width, because as you widen your hands frequently, not always, but sometimes you need a shorter stem. We don't want to increase your reach by making your bars wider. So we, we widen the base of support to account for that uneven terrain and to, to give you more leverage to drive the bike down and in those turns. And, but we're also giving you an unstable surface when you're going over these rocks and roots, even in a straight line, the bars are bouncing all over the place. And so we can account for some of that unstable surface by compressing the cockpit a little bit or by shortening it a touch to give you a little more control and to have the muscles be in a little more, we'll say the shoulders, uh, and, triceps, biceps, arms, the whole shoulder complex, all that area can be a little more neutral. Not, it's very common for riders to grab the road bike with 
a very protracted shoulder, which is pushing your shoulder out away from your spine to reach those bars. It's also common for roadies to bring their shoulders up towards their ears and elevate the shoulders. And that can be quite arrow, which gets into our contortionism to make you arrow discussion. But that is not what we want on a gravel bike. We want a more anchored, stable, neutral shoulder because when you're generating a lot of power at the hips and putting, and a lot of that force is being, um, we'll say transferred through the core, and then you've got to stabilize the bars. When your shoulders are in an unstable position, either elevated or protracted, right? Raised up towards the ears or pushed way forward out in front of you, then the shoulder's not stable. Then you're, then that force has to go somewhere and, or you end up with really fatigued hands and forearms because you're gripping the bars maybe tighter than you should be. So all these subtle things add up to us basically we'll say setting up the bike to meet the demands of the event. Right. Right. And I think this kind of comes into the, the point that we always talk about is what are the rate limiting factors of your event? And one of them obviously is traction. Yes. When you're going downhill, the front wheel is king on gravel. Your back wheel uh, can be sliding left, right. Doesn't really matter where. It always seems to just follow where your front goes, especially through a rock garden. Thank you for reminding me on that. Yeah. Whereas when you're climbing on a gravel bike, the only wheel that actually matters is the rear wheel. Mm-hmm. And that is to add another layer to the, to the point here is, Every time we hit a rock with a wheel or a bump, that's a compression point, and that's a shock through the body, and it slows the momentum of the bike, which can make you unstable, which can add another, as you say, balance challenge to the event. So a lot of the time when we're going to a bump, rock, whatever we want to be saying here, is you actually lift the front handlebar over it, and then you only have the one compression point, which is the rear wheel. So it kind of smooth things out. So one of the reasons why I always... Um, advocate for a shorter cockpit um, is to make sure that you're actually in a position where, like you said, your shoulders aren't rolled forward. They're actually sitting further back. So your posterior spine is actually in a straight line so that you can with ease constantly be lifting the front wheel up. And Mm -hmm. that maintains more contact and more pressure on the rear tire the whole time you're climbing, which is traction, which is control. And you're not going to have these kind of burnouts on the back tire, which for most people is what actually causes them to kind of lose balance climbing, lose momentum. And then you can come to a section where you can't clip in. Um, But on that note as well, I always advocate as well for the handlebars, generally speaking, to come up. And I know we're not saying that everyone belongs to an algorithm here, but let me flow for a while and we can, we can kind of play with the idea. One of my main goals when I'm setting myself up on the gravel bike is taking into account that when I'm descending, I'm very rarely on the hoods. I find that that's not the most confidence-inspiring position, either on the road for that for that um, note. But I find that the hoods can actually be kind of slippery at a certain point, and you also get less leverage on your brake lever, which to me leads to less control. So when I'm descending anything steep or technical, I'm always in the drops. So what I kind of think about is when I'm on the drops on a gravel bike is that I would like to have the same back position that I have on my road bike on the, on the tops, but when I'm actually on the bottoms. So my descending position, and also for that matter, my aero position is quite comfortably low. But if you were to have the handlebars as low as you do on the road bike, you would actually be far too far over the front wheel on descents. And then also that's just going to make you feel really twitchy 
and you're not going to have that balance point right. Um, but another, another rate limiting factor that I find with gravel is seat height. Um, I know you mentioned moving the seat forward, which I'd also advocate for. Um, I think that's, that's an important point to make, but I also tend to go for myself at least one centimeter lower on the saddle. And that does sound like a lot because, um, you know, for some people lowering their saddle by one centimeter on a road bike would just be kind of out of this world. But one of the things that we're actually doing whilst off-road, whether it be mountain biking or gravel riding or cyclocross, is that when we are actually trying to push over a rock or a route or we're trying to lift the back wheel up, we're actually doing these sort of micro standing accelerations a lot where we're actually lifting up from the saddle. And I find that if my saddle is the same height as my road bike, I find that I'm already kind of too high to then activate the rest of that pedal stroke to actually control that. Hmm. And on that note as well, I think when I've lowered my saddle for those uh, kind of reasons, or just taking into account that you spend so much time in and out of the saddle um, going over bumps, having that saddle lower also eliminates for me a lot of pressure on my lower back. And one of the things that I also find is aerodynamics is not the key limiting factor to gravel racing, but it's actually still a very important part. You know, if you're in front all of a sudden at unbound and you're trying to get air on some of these long sections, you still need to get low. Yeah. And I find that having the saddle just that little bit lower means that I'm actually now able to rotate my pelvis forward and then I can actually bend my elbows. And, and people have to remember that a bike position is not should not always be set on having straight arms because that's not what you're gonna be doing the whole time on the bike. Sometimes you need to actually bend your elbows forward to get lower. So right. having the handlebars higher and the seat lower, but knowing that you can rotate your pelvis forward and actually drop your elbows into an aero position means for me that I actually find I can still find that aerodynamic position on the bike whilst having all of the control features of the situation. So I kind of call it a rule of one, and um, this is definitely a layman's terms, but if we're just looking for like, in my opinion, a quick fix, and, and you can score me on this being a much more proficient bike fitter than I, I like to bring the handlebars closer by one centimeter. Yep. I like to drop the saddle by one centimeter. I like to put the seat forward by one centimeter, and I like to bring the handlebars up by one centimeter. Hmm. And that's a very general rule. And as you said, some people are more flexible and some people are already coming from a road position that is kind of already that. But I find that just for a starting point for gravel position, just changing those kind of few things that we can change on the bike by one, one centimeter, I find that you can actually come very close to an ideal position for what are the demands of gravel riding, which is strength and comfort, ability to actually proprioceptively and with as little effort as possible, lift the bike and control the bike and then also drive the bike down technical and steep climbs, which is another reason why I like to have the seat forward. So you can actually slide up onto the saddle to find that traction point where you can get the lower part of your body also in control and leaning forward to make sure that the front wheel doesn't lift off the ground. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, well, for context, uh, if you're okay with it, Nathan, I'll, I'll share some of your basic fit numbers. Um, are you good with that? Yeah, man. I, mean, I, I got, I don't, I don't think anyone's going to tap into uh, any kind of high performance by copying my bike position. I, I would think not, but who knows? Uh, but 
Yeah, so Nathan's saddle height is around 70, 70, 750 millimeters. And your saddle setbacks around 75 on, and this is for road. So uh, these are numbers I looked at the last time you and I worked together on your road bike, which was a while ago. And your cockpit distance from the tip of the saddle to the center of the bar, I have you at about 573. So, you know, just for context, listeners can maybe get an understanding of what that means. If you're obviously, if you are quite a bit shorter or taller than Nathan, you might extrapolate these by percentage a bit to start as a starting point. I think the rule of one for a guy your size isn't a bad place to start. Ultimately, you know, gravel bar height, they're, they're, this is a great point you bring up. You know, you know that my philosophy is not to recommend fit numbers based on any bell curve because that violates the basic rule of all humans, which is that, you know, God is a novelty generator and everybody's a fingerprint. So why do we care how your bike fit numbers are in comparison to a bell curve? We don't because they need to be right for you, not, and they have nothing to do with what the bell curve is. So I, I really have a strong distaste for using orthodox data as a methodology for fitting bike riders. I'll just say that. And I know that not every bike fitter thinks that way. Uh, I do think that data has value in moments, but the danger is that you start to compare your client's data to that orthodox value and make bad decisions. So enough on that. But if uh, ultimately there are some aspects of bike fitting that are relatively, I'll say, stern recommendations for me as a fitter, like, yeah, I pretty much think your saddle should be here on this bike. But there are other aspects of bike fit that are much more, let's see how this goes. You have to tell me how this feels in the real world. And I coach the athlete through, this is what you're looking for. When you're on your long climbing ride, does your lower back hurt? Does this happen? Do your hands go numb? If this is the case, we've made some changes in this dimension of your handlebar reach or drop. But if you're still having these symptoms, we may need to make another adjustment further along, or maybe we went too far. So there are aspects of bike fit that are very individual and based on your feeling. As far as what you were saying about moving all those dimensions, what I'd say is, you know, there's a balance there in the, in the bar height. When we bring the bars up on a gravel bike, that gives us a little more control over bumpy terrain. It's a little easier to keep the shoulder neutral. Uh, but when we go too high with the bar height, which I have seen sometimes, the risk is that the rider will lose the ability to drive the, the bike in the drops on fast sweeping dirt road corners. Because in those situations, we're back to that Formula One analogy. We want the lowest position possible. And I'm really glad to hear, Nathan, you say that you descend in the drops regularly, and that's your most stable position. I can't tell you how many riders come through my door and say, oh, I never use the drops. And this is a huge red flag that either their bike setup is disastrously wrong or their flexibility and mobility are disastrously insufficient for their demands of their sport, or maybe a combination of both. Um, the other point I'll make on that is this is a bit of a frustration for me as a bike fitter, but okay. When we align the drops in the correct position, that is the correct distance from the saddle, both in terms of, um, height drop from the saddle and also, uh, length. And then we make the drop angle correct such that the rider can embrace the drops with a neutral wrist, right? And then we put the brake levers on those bars such that the rider can use the position in the hoods with a neutral wrist 
here's the problem. When you put your, rider, your hands back in those drops, if you extend your index finger straight out without tweaking the angle of your hand at all, I have yet to see a single rider whose finger will actually wrap around the brake lever. Modern road brake levers, this is, I'm back on my soapbox here. Modern ro road brake levers are about four centimeters too short. No one makes the right brake length, brake lever length. This is because basically other than adding shifters to them, brake levers haven't really changed months since 1904. Uh, if you're a component manufacturer and you're listening to this podcast, I'm just going to be a dick for a minute. You're doing it wrong. You need to change this. And here's my argument why. Nathan, when you get on your mountain bike and you grab your mountain bike handlebars and your hands are on the grips and you extend your index finger out, if your brake lever was not in the immediate direct reach of that index finger, you wouldn't even ride the bike. You would immediately stop and say, give me an Allen key. I need to adjust this so that I can reach my brakes. And every single mountain biker, even the most novice, understands this as an evident, it's a self-evident truth. It's like a priori. You came out of the womb, one, two, you became a cyclist, a mountain biker, and three, you knew that your brake lever had to be reachable when you were descending. Not rocket science, yeah. right? Without happening to like <laughs> contort your arm around the handlebar. Exactly. Yeah. And, but, but I mean, you, you know... Yeah. Uh, here we the are. conversation of the conversation about road riding and traditionalism is um you yes. know it's finally coming to the fore in certain aspects but there's a lot that mountain biking can teach road in the sense that roads had a very short history relatively speaking and the engineers that were involved with mountain biking from the start actually kind of had such incredible and obvious demands of i need control i need this bike to fit me i need sway back handlebars i need to be in a position that i can actually use this thing yes so the engineering was actually kind of as you said it's sort of like a priori it was already there it was too obvious um and you know for that matter though as well i'm starting to see some positions on the gravel bike and here's where i'm getting onto my soapbox um this might be an unpopular position but I'm really sick to death of seeing these really, really wide gravel handlebars where they widen on the drops. And it's in a position where the hood is actually turned outwards so yep. that their wrist is no longer in a neutral position. It's such an unnatural position to be riding with your fingers. If your arms are horizontal and your fingers are pointed to the sky and twisted outwards, there yeah. is no control there. That is not a safe bike position. It's mm -hmm. also, from my experience, not something that is actually better for your lower back or for your stability to hold yourself because your arms have become so wide now that there is actually a tipping point where you're now stabilizing no longer through your arms, but through your core and your lower back, which leads to what? Fatigue, which leads to what? Pain. So for me, when I see people riding bikes with their hoods turned outwards, it just makes absolutely no sense. And um, I'm not going to tell them to their face, but they can listen on the podcast here. And I'm sorry if this offends you, but um, I'm well, trying to say this for your own protection. Yeah, fair enough um, to, uh, to each his own. But I'll say that, you know, I think the concept of the swept, the wide bar, and I, I do have a lot of people come through my door and ask me, what's the deal with these gravel bars that are swept out so wide, you know? And from my perspective, they're sort of a hybrid between a traditional road bar and a mountain bike bar. They're sort of splitting the difference. And so I can see some logic in that, but the, the key for me is how you grip a bar. And what's unique about the upper arm 
or I'll say the upper uh, limb relative to the lower limb, you know, at the joint of the knee, we don't have a lot of movement to externally or internally rotate the lower leg relative to the upper leg. You can rotate the entire leg in the hip socket. But once you fix the knee, if you try to rotate the lower leg, we've got a few degrees for sure, but not a ton and not nearly as much as we do in the upper versus lower arm. So if you fix your shoulder and just twist your hand left and right, rotate it, palm up, palm down, you can go almost 180 degrees if you've got reasonable mobility in your lower arm without really your shoulder or bicep moving, right? So the key in this type of handlebar is if you're still maintaining an external rotation to the shoulder, a, a neutral shoulder position, and then you are internally rotating the hand to meet that swept graveled bar position in the drop, I think it can work for some riders in some scenarios. But the risk is, or I'll say the tendency is, unfortunately, that most riders probably when their lower arm rotates internally, their shoulder follows into that internal rotation, that pronatory position. All pronation is really just collapsed towards the midline ultimately. And all external rotation, doesn't matter if we're talking about shoulders, feet, or hips, or ankles, is supination. It's expansion away from the midline, right? So when we rotate that shoulder we uh, internally, we pronate, the shoulder becomes inherently unstable. It's a less stable position to use. And again, it's quite arrow when you compress the shoulder up towards the ear and rotate it internally to turtle your head and be an arrow time trialist or arrow on your road bike or on your gravel bike when you're in Kansas and you're, excuse me, unbound and you're trying to hang on for dear life on somebody's wheel in a headwind. But it's not a stable position for descending on a gravel bike where we've got to deal with those bumps and roots and rocks and the front wheel sliding. And so we want that neutral shoulder. And uh, I want to reverse just for a second, Nathan, and comment. Thank you for reminding me. I had intended to go back to the difference between road and, and off-road. Road handling in a corner, we need relatively equal pressure front and rear wheel. It doesn't matter which wheel breaks loose. Either way, you're pretty much screwed. But all off-road riding is heavily front weight biased, meaning we protect the front wheel, we protect the traction of the front wheel. And that also is one reason why some riders might benefit from pushing their saddle forward a little bit to front wheel bias uh, their weight during cornering situations. That said, I think a lot of riders take that too far forward. And without going down this rabbit hole, if you want to check out my podcast with Greg Choate, we talk about this quite a bit and Chris Balzer. There's a modern trend in professional road riding right now to slam your saddle forward and then bury your stem and do a ridiculously long stem. And I'll tell you, Nathan, textbook example of this. I got to deviate for one second, but this is relevant to our point of handling. Dauphiné, 2021, I believe it was stage four. The ultimate super compensator, Geraint Thomas, crashed on the descent. Now, Geraint's a really interesting rider because he, if you look at older photos of him in time trials and in team pursuit days on the GB squad, he has a very, very traditional cycling position. Saddle pretty far back, a bit higher, low front bar, very arrow, very capable. Durant is known as a guy who, who literally can grab the wrong bike on a training ride and apparently ride it for two hours and not really notice. He's just, he's the point one of point one in so many ways. And one of those ways, uh, you know, in, a, in a, his athletic ability aside, in terms of, you know, oxygen carrying capacity and all that, what I mean is he can do just about anything with his body and morph and still make good power. So 
Now his position is really, really extremely far forward. His saddle slammed forward. His bars are way out there over the front wheel. We look at stage four in the descent of the Dauphiné, and you can see it clearly on the footage. Everyone else makes it through the corner just fine. It's a left-hand hairpin. Geraint Thomas, one of the best cyclists in the world, potential Tour de France container on the uh, contender on the ground, rear wheel slide out. This is because his weight is too far forward on that bike. I'm going to make the call right now, being an armchair bike fitter, fitting one of the best guys in the world on TV footage, but you can see it clearly. Rear wheel just washes right out. This is weight balance. This is poor weight distribution over the axles, and this is one of the problems when you slam the saddle forward. So when we talk about pushing the saddle forward in your rule of one, there are multiple consequences to going too far forward. If you've got a lot of lower back pain and you slam your saddle forward and magically it cures your back pain, that was a Band-Aid, not the, probably not the, the proper solution. But we need to be aware of how that impacts your handling on gravel. And yes, it's front wheel biased. We want to have the rear wheel float, but that doesn't mean we get to slam the saddle to the moon over the bottom bracket uh, because you sacrifice many other aspects of riding when you do that. And I won't get on more of a tangent than that to explain all that stuff. Well, I think we got pretty deep into the weeds on bike fitting. I think <laughs> that, that could have been its own episode and, and maybe in the future we, we come back on it. I, I know sure. your, um, your podcast for, for everyone um, who would be interested in hearing Colby talk like this upon his soapbox on many other subjects, controversial or not, uh, it's one of my favorite. It's called Cycling in Alignment. Um, I think it's one of the most holistic and also, I would say, uh, bike standard challenging podcasts um, out there. It's a great listen. Um, but if we move away from bike fitting for a moment, um, Colby's much more than a bike fitter. He's an amazing coach. He's an amazing thinker of cycling. And he has um, a very intuitive and well-educated understanding of what the demands of a sport are. So if we could delve into um, maybe a, perhaps a touch more briefly than we did on bike fit, even, even though I love where that went, I think, um, I yep. think uh, we, <laughs> maybe we lost a few listeners in some of the, uh, the specifics. Hopefully not. Um, hopefully not. I, I hope this is the go-to point and podcast for, for all things gravel and, and bike fit is a huge part of that. But I would like to ask you sort of from a, a coaching perspective, um, seeing as that that's one of the other big hats that you wear um, and one of the biggest and probably most um, profound hats that you actually wear in cycling is coaching. If you, we are going to talk about gravel racing as opposed to just gravel riding here. So again, we're going to go into a little bit more of a niche, um, we could call it. What would you say are the fundamental differences between training for a gravel event and let's keep this between the bounds of saying it's between 100 k's and unbound being the furthest point that we're reaching here okay um we had that interesting conversation with stetner um which you've listened to in episode one where pete says now he would essentially make a fantastic breakaway rider and his ability to do those five minute max shootouts is a lot less and i i don't think pete's uh <laughs> highest performing um element of road cycling was ever his five minute max but um that's come down somewhat and that was a really interesting point to to listen to so if you were going to talk about what the changes are needed to be a good gravel rider and um also maybe talk about 
how we would actually approach an overall kind of coaching perspective on how much time we actually need to spend on the gravel bike, because that's sort of another question. So I'll leave yeah. those many plethora of a question over to you and hopefully you've remembered all of them. <laughs> so, well, just for clarity, we're, we're contextualizing kind of a traditional road rider and their, and how they might change their training program. So someone who's doing road races, time trials, criteriums, is that a fair starting point? Yes. A good okay. starting point. Okay. Well, so when we look at the demands of the event for gravel and we contrast them from our traditional road rider profile, someone who's doing fast group rides or, you know, crits and TTs, maybe some road races. There, there are a lot of similarities in those two events. There's a lot of overlap, but what are the critical differences? The differences are that in gravel, you're going to have to have that ability to handle the bike over that loose and rough terrain. And so clearly we're going to have to include that in our training program, we're gonna have to include that type of riding specifically in our training load and not only just at whatever endurance pace, but at times during race paced efforts, because when you're sailing around corners, going whatever speed you're comfortable with in training, that can certainly develop your handling skills and your feel for the bike. But when you're trying to go down a descent as fast as possible, or when you're trying to simply go around a flat corner that's on dirt or single track gravel or fire road as fast as possible, that's quite a bit different. So we want to include some race paced efforts, which mix in handling the, the challenge there is when we do that inherently, when we go onto a gravel route for our training, we can give up some of our aerobic load, depending, this is a big caveat, a big asterisk, depending on what type of terrain you're riding on. But I just had this conversation with one of my riders the other day, and he, he said, yeah, I feel like I've been doing these three-hour gravel rides on the weekends, and we've been treating them as zone two rides. That's how they've been prescribed. And the idea is the concept of a zone two ride from a physiological perspective is to put the rider above their aerobic threshold, which is not to be confused with your anaerobic threshold, your aerobic threshold, which simply means that you're generating some lactate and you're also consuming that lactate. So your, your lactate levels are relatively constant, but the engine is working, right? You're generating some and you're also using it as fuel. And as a, in contrast, if you're below your aerobic threshold, you're really your lactate levels. You're not generating, generating enough lactate for you to be consuming it in your aerobic engine. And so that's a critical point of distinction in training load from the body's perspective. It's one of those things that you do it for an hour or two and it's not really that hard, but after five hours, you're like, Ooh, this is really my legs feel this load. And also I had to eat a lot and drink a lot to keep up that pace. Otherwise your pace will fall off. So when we prescribe this three hour zone two ride, what we're hoping for is two and a half hours plus or minus of relatively constant load in that zone two, where you're dealing with that lactate load and that aerobic engine is working and consuming that load. It's working like a little washing machine. You make lactate, you consume it, you make it, you consume it. And that's part of the training benefit of being in that zone. But when you're on a gravel ride and you're doing twisty trails and you're over rough terrain where there's more coasting and it's not always possible to keep constant power on the pedals, then that suddenly the total time in that zone two goes down a lot quite quickly. Um, and maybe, or maybe the opposite problem happens where you're on gravel and now you've got steeper hills and little climbs. And so instead of two and a half hours of zone two, we end up with an hour of zone two 
but an hour of zone three because you had to make it up the steep hill. And even though you were a conscientious athlete and you were shifting to smaller cogs quickly and trying not to just jam up every hill mindlessly, you were trying to stay in your zone and having good zone and zone discipline. It just sort of happens on hilly rides. And so what I'm saying is if you want to be very precise about the, the intervals or the times that you want to acquire in a certain zone, or you want a certain physiological effect, which is basically zone two rides are about constant low level pressure and handling that it's like a low level time trial. If you think about it, it's a very low level TT, but it is a low level, constant pressure ride, as opposed to a ride that's more stochastic or more varied in the pace. And that has a very specific training benefit for the athlete. And so when you go on gravel, we run the risk of losing some of that. So I guess what I'm saying is it depends a lot on your locale. If you have some long, steady dirt road climbs and you've got very specific efforts you want to do, you know, five minute intervals or even Tabatas or accelerations or just constant tempos, then you would carefully select those roads for those types of days if you want to do those efforts on your gravel bike. And there's benefit to that. But if you live in an area where most of your gravel terrain is really sneaky or twisty or very technical, or you know that when you get on your gravel bike, you're not going to be able to resist the temptation to select a route that has this type of terrain, then those days are better left for training days where you want to focus on technical aspects of performance and less so on very specific intervals. So I don't know if that totally answers your question because you're asking about the demands of gravel training, but I think that balancing that technical element of learning how to handle your bike under load is important, but also recognizing that when we want very specific programming, if you're the type of rider who wants very specific intervals or your coach is writing them for you, or if you're a coach and you want your athlete to have specific execution, precise execution of uh, intervals in different zones, you got to really clearly explain to your athlete, look, this isn't the day to go on the single track twisty ride because you're just not going to be able to do a 20-minute effort on that type of terrain. We need a, either a steady dirt road, you know, a gentle climb or a, a long dirt climb that's not very rooty or rocky or crazy, or just go on your road bike for that day and save the gravel bike for the next day. Yeah, so, I mean, that's, that's sort of where I see it and how I kind of approach the concept of, of training for gravel is that one, one of the issues that I see is that you spend so much time actually not pedaling that that's also a bit of an issue. So you might've done three hours, but, and depending on your locale, as you say, there's going to have a huge bearing on actually how much time you spent under load. So if you want to be more specific um, about your training, and this is exactly what Stetner was saying is he still does most of his work on the road bike. Yeah. For that reason is because it's a very controllable environment. Um, you know, an even more controllable environment is indoor riding, but you know, I, I don't have very much time for that except for wet weather days. Mm -hmm. That could be a little bit because I spent 10 weeks last year on an indoor bike. So I think um, <laughs> maybe I'm biased there, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, I think that one of the key things for gravel is making sure that you keep your skills sharp. Um, your body needs to be adapted to the position and the bumpy demands of that for as many hours as you need for your race. But, um, you know, gravel riding is also something that I like to do on my easy recovery days um, because of that kind of internalizing and reconnecting with nature and actually getting off those human-made tarmacs and everything. So yeah, I think, um, you know, we can probably loop back to this on another podcast where we talk a little bit more about coaching. Um, mm -hmm. We don't want to stretch. We don't want to stretch tonight out too long. But, yeah, um, but yeah I, think, I think that's a really interesting um, point you make is that 
you know, gravel riding is so hard to control. And it's, it's one of the things I love about it is it, I feel more wild when I'm on my gravel bike, but mm. yeah, I spend so much time all of a sudden doing, you know, five to 600 Watts for 20 seconds to get up the steep section. And then I'll be doing another minute where I haven't pedaled. And then I'll be doing, you know, 20 minutes um, at a much lower power to anything zone two, if that was what was prescribed, if I'm going through single track yeah. and um, also weather is something that, um, you know, if you're riding on really wet, sloppy roads, um, you know, it becomes more of a balancing act than it does a pedaling one. And then the heat on the gravel is something that you actually find to be much more profound because you're not getting as much air cooling. So yeah. I think, um, yeah, we, we can definitely cover this um, on a future podcast if you would like to come back with us because I've been enjoying this conversation a lot. Um, I'd love to. But what I'd, what I'd like to do, Colby, is end this lovely conversation we've had um, with the two questions that I ask every guest. And the first one is, do you have any advice for beginners? Of course. Um, if you're just getting started out in gravel, I'd say that one of the most simple things you can do to help elevate your riding is ride with friends or mentors. Find a local club, a local group, find some experts and just absorb, be the sponge, ride with them. Don't be concerned about holding them up or getting dropped. If, if that's the, the situation or the energy, then find maybe find a different group that's more receptive to working with beginners. Don't be afraid to go out and get dropped. You can learn a lot from getting dropped. Ask questions, observe, be the sponge. You know, the best way to improve is to put yourself in the company of riders that are better than you. There's a little bit of nuance to that. Ideally, you want someone who's um, a, a click better than you or maybe two clicks, not eight clicks, right? It's not gonna do, if this is your first year of bike riding, and you went out and tried to ride with, you know, Ted King and Peter Stetna, that might not quite be so constructive because the, the level's too far. But you see what I'm getting at. Find someone who can just, you can learn from and can push you. And don't be afraid to go out and make mistakes or do dumb things because this is something that all humans do. We get embarrassed. I think this, I've, I've noticed this in myself several times. Anytime we learn anything new, we kind of have this beginner's mind, which is beautiful and, and a wonderful way to explore, ex explore a new sport or, or task, whether it's archery or gravel riding or drawing or whatever you're learning or a new language. But the fact is that I think we all need to take a step back and recognize that no one is really, really amazing at something out of the blocks. I mean, yeah, of course, you know, you've got your your super talents. You've got your, I'm sure the first time Jerry Thomas got on a bike, he, he probably smashed it down to the end of his block and beat all the other kids in his, on his BMX bike or whatever he did. But you know, 99.99% of us aren't in that boat and that's okay. We're here to learn. And when you're learning something new and you're a beginner, just give yourself a break and just accept the fact that you don't know what's going on. And that's why you're there. That's the point. So there's no, there's no losing face in not knowing what to do, not understanding what the right tire pressure is, not understanding what kind of chain lube to use. It can be the simplest things. Cycling is such a huge rabbit hole of little technical bits that can make such a massive difference in your performance. And you can read blogs and you can listen to podcasts and read books and uh, see the YouTube videos, but there's the best way to learn is face-to-face -face interaction with another human and then to have them look at you and go, why are you doing it this way? 
everyone does it that way. I learned that lesson five years ago. And you say, thank you so much for telling me that. I had no idea that my saddle nose angle should not be four degrees pointed up. I just didn't know that. Don't tell people this. This podcast is where everyone is supposed to learn everything. (laughs) Well, now you know if your saddle's nose angle is four degrees up, you should put it at least at zero, if not slightly down. There you go. And you can ask Pete Staten about that one because there was a time when he was a very young rider that he actually was trying to convince us all that was the right way to ride a saddle. So anyway. (laughs) Well, I think that's great. I think I call that the older sibling effect. The, yes. uh, the younger sibling always develops faster with a good yeah. teacher. Yeah. But someone's still within their scope of, of skill. You know, they're not, they're not learning how to kick a soccer ball from an adult. They're learning it from their older brother or sister and um, they develop well. So the second question, and we call this part of the show, the log, mm-hmm. as we're trying to encourage and inspire people to ride new places all around the world. And this does not have to be in your own garden for the, this matter. It can be anywhere you've ever been. What would you say is the greatest gravel ride you've ever done? Oh man, what a great question. Um, you know, I haven't done so many amazing gravel races yet. I have done the Crusher, which is a, a pretty solid race here uh, in, in the U.S. It's in Utah. Haven't done, haven't had the opportunity to do Unbound or Belgian Waffle, some of the real staple gravel races. But we've got some unbelievable gravel riding from our house. There's one that's just, um, it's so simple. It's got a mixture of fire road, single track, and pavement to get up a massive climb at uh, the top of a local hill called Super Flagstaff. Flagstaff Mountain was one of the stage finishes in the US Pro Challenge a few years ago back when that was a bike race that happened here. And so it's just a local, super twisty, steep, challenging climb. And you get to climb to what we call super flag, which is the extra high part of that over the summit. And descend down the backside and then progress past a reservoir in the mountains called Gross Reservoir. And then you get to get on this little double track Jeep road that is called 68J. And 68J is this just perfect textbook example of Colorado sort of we'll say mountain culture. Uh, it's a legal Jeep road. It's quite challenging for gravel, a lot of rocks, roots, big dips and swoops and high speed sections and low speed sections and balance and amazing views. It also has private property signs all over it that are intentionally placed such that you think you're not, you're on a private road the entire time and you're about to get shot because there's a bunch of crabby old local mountain men who live up there and they think that this should be their backyard road and they don't want people riding bikes on it or hiking on it or doing all the things that we are legally entitled to do because it is a road that is owned by the state of Colorado. So that makes it interesting too. And occasionally you get some scowls and some few comments from the neighbors, but I just ignore all those and enjoy my, uh, my, my 68 J time. And there's all kinds of ways to connect that ride to, crazy other stuff. You can make it up to the mountain town of Netherland, which is the home of EF rider Alex Howes, of course, and many other uh, good local pros. And so you can stop there and have a coffee and do your thing and, and get some more mountain culture. But that's probably one of my favorite local gravel rides. There's a lot of good stuff here, though. It's hard to pick a favorite, to be honest. Well, to be honest, I feel like Boulder, Colorado for a part of my life is a second or third or fourth home for me. I've got a lot of homes. Um, and I'm getting a little bit nostalgic and maybe a bit homesick for riding in Colorado after you say that. Come visit, man. 
Oh, nice. well, <laughs> <laughs> when I can, yes, at my first possible convenience, I will be back over. Mm-hmm. Um, but for anyone listening, I would highly recommend any of the riding in Boulder, Colorado, and a lot of the trails at the top of Netherlands. We had a fantastic day mountain biking there once, and yeah. uh, all trails that are completely appropriate for gravel. Um, and yeah, I, I don't think there's many places in the world better for a bike ride and then to finish off with some super healthy crazy good food in boulder central um i think uh yeah there's very few places in the world as cycling cyclocentric as colorado but um on the note of those private signs on the roads i've I've actually always felt like it's a bit of like forbidden fruit you know like it's a bit of a bust out now that i actually hear that they're fake signs because i always thought i was being a bit of a badass risk taker but you know (laughs) you're pulling that for me now well in around Boulder and in Colorado, most of those signs are probably actually really telling you, you could get shot. Um, it's just this 68 J in particular, for some reason, it's like all the neighbors got together and decided to sort of place the signs in such a way that you're never quite sure what's going on unless you're a local and you've been through there a million times like I have, but it, for someone who's riding it for the first time, they would literally be stopping every 20, 20 meters and going, am I still on the road? Did I make a wrong turn? And they'd be doing U-turns and reversing and stuff. I, I the map says that I, this goes through, but the way you look at the signs, they're all oriented in such a way to make you think that you're on private property when you're not. So it's pretty funny, actually. Yeah, that's great. Well, Colby, I find that you're a superstar and I'm sure that all the listeners will agree that your depth of knowledge and way of explaining and extrapolating pretty complex things into simple terms and simple things into complex terms is second to none. And I would like to thank you very much for coming on the Gravelog. Thank you so much, Nathan. It's a real honor to be on your pod and thank you for the shout out on my podcast. I want to go ahead and let the listeners know that this is also going to technically be a cross pod. I'm going to publish this conversation on my channel as well. And I have to um, add us an asterisk to your earlier intro on that, Nathan. I started my pod under the umbrella of fast talk labs and that has since shifted gears. And now I have gone out onto my own exploring the the wild, wild west wilderness of podcasts. And now my podcast is called Cycling in Alignment with Colby Pierce. So if you find the old channel, which is called Cycling in Alignment, this is a little bit convoluted, sorry. You'll get all the episodes, but then there won't be any future episodes because the new ones are being published on Cycling in Alignment with Colby Pierce. Never fear if you subscribe to Cycling in Alignment with Colby Pierce, you get all the episodes I did on both channels. So that's my too long explanation for the world of podcasts and I have no possible way to um, make that any simpler because it's podcasts and this is 2021 but that's the story thank you Nathan for uh, for having me on and I'm gonna I'm gonna push the show out on that channel as well and I'm really looking forward to hearing what my listeners have to say about our conversation anyway big love to all the listeners and get out on your bike it's fun indeed enjoy that was great thanks Nathan Attention, Space Monkeys, public service announcement. Really, technically, it's a disclaimer. You already know this, but I'm going to remind you that I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a doctor, so don't take anything on this podcast to constitute lawyerly or doctorly advice. I don't play either of those characters on the internet, which again is self-evident. Gratitude.